Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it. And now for the reading. I hate Eleanor Hunt, and I will take that hatred to my grave. No amount of life wisdom, middle-aged perspective, or loving-kindness meditation can blunt the edge of my bitter resentment of Eleanor Hunt. I don't even know if she's still alive. I haven't laid eyes on her since third grade. But no matter. No matter. If my lifelong study of English literature has taught me anything, it's that a good revenge fantasy can, and should, extend beyond death. It all began innocently enough. The students at Angeline M. Post Elementary School in Wilton, Connecticut, were going to put on a play. And not just any play, The Wizard of Oz. In the white middle-class suburbs of the 1970s, there was not a theatrical production better suited to incite eager anticipation in the female elementary school breast. We all watched the movie every year on TV, mined its cast of characters for Halloween costumes, and named our small dogs stuffed or animate, Toto. Most importantly, we all suspected that we were as adorable and tuneful as Judy Garland, and it was just a matter of time before we were discovered and made into a star. That last part might have been true only of a small subset of the population. Our music teacher, whose name I have repressed, but let's call her Miss Gulch, was in charge of the production, so auditions took place during music class. Every third grader was handed a mimeographed page of the script, a snippet of dialogue between Glinda the Good Witch and Dorothy, and lined up alongside the chalkboard by the side of the room. As we awaited our turn to audition, we had an opportunity to read over the script pages and listen to the other auditioners. I was far back in the line, so had lots of time to plot my strategy. I was immediately struck by the fact that the students ahead of me all read woodenly and without expression, as they struggled to decipher the words on the page. Hmm, I remember thinking, that doesn't sound right. I was at a distinct advantage because I had been reading for years at that point, having taught myself at age two or three. I had the luxury of considering how I wanted to read the words, rather than simply trying to decode them. After listening to the seventh or eighth child ahead of me painfully declaim, Are you a good witch or a bad which, I had a blinding epiphany. What if I tried to make the dialogue sound natural, like I was talking to Dorothy in real life? When it was my turn, I strode confidently up to the piano, cleared my throat, and simpered, Are you a good witch or a bad witch? at my music teacher. I even tried to imitate Billy Burke's sugary falsetto lilt, trilling the R in the first word as I waved a pretend wand over the piano keyboard. My teacher was visibly startled, but we marched briskly through the entire page of dialogue, with me hemming it up like a wee Ethel Barrymore, pointing to the munchkins, the students on the other side of the room, as I movingly explained to Dorothy how she had freed them from oppression when her house landed on their tormentor. When we were finished, the other students in the class applauded, and I curtsied prissily at them, still in character. A monster is born. There were only one or two more students left to audition after me, and I feel sorry for them to this day. When it was all over and we were back in our seats, our music teacher turned to the class and said, Well, I think there's no need for suspense. I'm sure we all agree that we found our Glinda, yes? Probably my memories embroidering events when I recall that at this point there was another round of applause, 
but there was definitely a chorus of murmuring assent, if not a brava from the back of the room. And then, and then, fatefully, horribly, my teacher went on, that is, if no one has any objection. Oh, cruel words, what impish demon led her to utter that portentous phrase that would seal my doom and scar me forever? Eleanor Hunt, Eleanor Hunt, raised her hand and sweetly replied, Actually, I don't think that would be fair, since Deanna played Mary in the Christmas pageant. Played Mary in the Christmas pageant? A role with no dialogue that consisted of standing silently next to Joseph while he requested shelter from a tatterdemalion crew of first-grade innkeepers? I hadn't even wanted that part. I was chosen because, at a year younger than my classmates, I was the only girl shorter than the wise men. As I sputtered with outrage at this assault on my burgeoning stardom, my teacher thoughtfully, i.e. cruelly, considered my classmates' protest. Hmm. Yes, I see your point, Eleanor. That wouldn't be fair. And then. And then. If you are a reasonable, thoughtful person listening to this essay, and you have followed me thus far, I suppose it's possible that you, too, might think that Eleanor Hunt had a point. There is a theoretical universe in which dramatic roles in third-grade musical productions are distributed so as to foster the emotional, psychological, and social growth of the student participants, rather than simply rewarding those who clearly have the most talent. I guess you could argue that elementary school is not an incubator for Broadway starlets, but rather a place of education. Whatever. But even if you do not hate Eleanor Hunt yet, I promise you will after you learn what happened next. Okay then, Miss Gulch went on. Since you're the one who pointed out the issue, Eleanor, why don't you take the part of Glinda the Good Witch? Here I must pause to collect myself. Decades have barely muted my bitter disappointment and white-hot rage. What important life lessons our music teacher felt she was imparting by rewarding the part to Eleanor Hunt merely because she was the one who complained, I am hard-pressed to say. Snitches finish first? To succeed in life, throw your peers under the bus? Everyone loves a morally righteous little prig? Even if I had to be deprived my star-making turn before the dozens of parents and board siblings of the students of Angeline M. Post Elementary School, at least the part should have been allotted in a fair and equitable manner. Even though the poor benighted second-best auditioner, her name is lost in the mists of time, was but a moat in the dust beneath my feet, even though she could never hope to touch the empyrean of thespian brilliance promised by the dazzling performance of yours truly— it was only fair that the pathetic creature be given a chance. I told myself that it was the injustice that rankled, not my petulance at having lost the part. In the end, Eleanor Hunt was our Glinda, and she sucked. It was painful to watch her frog march her way through her lines, with nary a lilt, nary a simper, the limp tinfoil star on the end of her wand, glintless and sad. I was not in the play at all, and so I sat with the rest of my classmates on the cold linoleum of the multi-purpose room to watch the moribund production, hating Eleanor Hunt with every fiber of my being, even as I gloated at her terrible performance. Schadenfreude is but a chilly bedfellow, even for a third grader. 
There was a consolation play for all the students who didn't make the cut for The Wizard of Oz. Just in case you missed it, I should have been in The Wizard of Oz, but was not. The backup play for Losers was an energy pageant, a gloriously 1970s propaganda piece about clean sources of power. The villains were natural gas, wood, coal, and oil, and the heroes were solar, nuclear, geothermal, and wind. I played Mr. Cole. My mother really helped me get into the part. She tightly braided my hair and smudged dark eyeshadow on my cheeks and forehead so I looked like I'd just emerged from a pit mine. I was also dressed in knickers and a flat cap, like a Victorian chimney sweep. The sartorial choices here are a bit puzzling. Why would Mr. Cole have been besmirched by the pollution he himself caused, or be engaged in cleansing fireplaces of his own byproducts? It's the same bizarre logic behind representations of the sun wearing sunglasses, or barbecue joints with chef tuked pigs offering platters of smoked ribs. Without tooting my own horn too much, let me just say that my performance as Mr. Cole led directly to the clean energy provisions of the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act. While I was gratified by the positive attention I received from my portrayal of a malodorous air pollutant, the one-two punch of cruel disappointment followed by unexpected triumph set the tone for my lifelong relationship with acting. I suppose it was an early taste of the power of intermittent reinforcement, the same psychological phenomenon that fuels gambling addiction and keeps people in abusive relationships. The mouse that gets a food pellet every time he pushes the lever very quickly learns to stop pushing when the food pellets stop. But the mouse who gets a pellet only occasionally will keep pushing an unproductive lever much, much longer. It only makes sense. Its little mouse brain is thinking, well, that one time I got a pellet after 57 non-pellet pushes. I must keep pushing at least 58 times before I give up. While the constant reward mouse, after only one or two failed pushes, thinks to himself, what? No pellet? Fuck this, and walks away. The life of an actor is pretty much exactly like that of a mouse in a Skinner box. Most of the time you get either nothing or a nasty shock, and then once in a blue moon, the machine dispenses that sweet, sweet pellet of applause and adulation, and you're hooked for at least another 57 rounds of rejection. I continued to act in amateur school and community theater productions throughout grade school and high school, experiencing my share of shocks and pellets, the whole time determined to go off to Juilliard or NYU or Yale Drama School and train to become a serious actor. The public high school I attended in suburban Philadelphia had an improbably robust drama program. We had a large, professional-level theater and stage, complete with roomy, well-equipped dressing rooms where I learned to do many things for the first time, and a faculty member whose nearly full-time gig was directing plays and teaching theatrical design. R.I.P. Mr. Fetterman. We mounted four productions a year, including a big musical every other spring that also roped in the school orchestra and chorus, a schedule that allowed a ragtag bunch of hams and misfits to self-identify as actors year-round. Our gang of theater kids was the same as every gang of theater kids that has ever existed since time immemorial. If you didn't happen to have one at your high school, they are still familiar to you from fame, a chorus line, and glee. Tap dancing, musical geniuses, and budding drag queens, mostly gay, with troubled home lives and heads stuffed with music written decades before we were born. Does anyone want to hear me sing the little-known intro to Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered? We even had a protagonist, a handsome football player who crossed the social divide at our high school to slum it in a production of Barefoot in the Park. My dream was ultimately nixed, 
or at least hobbled, by my father, who refused to pay for my college education if I majored in theater, and flat-out forbade me from going to school in New York or California, terrified that I would instantly become a lesbian should I set foot in either place. In the end, I went off to the University of Pennsylvania, where I found myself too intimidated to try out for any of the theater groups, which all seemed to skew heavily toward improv. Instead, I decided to prepare myself for a practical, lucrative career by majoring in English with a concentration in poetry writing. I'm joking, of course, but at the time, the majoring in English part did seem like a cop-out. Little did I know that by the time I got a PhD in literature, tenured professor of English would be a riskier occupational path than Broadway star. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to play it safe. Even though I've been on the grueling, punishing academic job market approximately 672 times and had my share of precarious 4-4 teaching gigs, I've also been incredibly lucky to end up with tenure in two different fabulous English departments. I consciously chose the life of an academic because I wanted my career to have a clearly defined structure with someone always telling me what to do next. I rejected the terrifying life of the theater, never even gave it a try, because I wanted to be secure and free from danger. But it's all an illusion. There is no such thing as safety, which is both a commonplace thing to say and a nearly impossible thing to believe. No one really cares what you do next. There's no good witch eager to dispense helpful travel instructions when you can't find your way home. Eleanor Hunt neither thwarted my ambitions nor enabled them, and I think it's probably time to stop hating her. She was just some random bratty kid trying to get ahead in the mixed-up crazy world we call the theater. She was just another tap-dancing schmo trying to get by. Hello, Deanna. Hello, Tanya. Thank you so much for sharing that amazing story. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I I love, that's actually, I think, my favorite thing I've written, honestly, on Dr. Waffle. So I had a lot of fun reading that because I got to act out the voices, too. <laughs> I know. I love that. As As delightful it is to read your words on the screen, like hearing you do that audition aloud was a thousand <laughs> times better. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See, pr proving my thesis, I would have made an excellent Glinda the Good Witch, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> so maybe you can talk a little bit about what made you decide to write this when you wrote it. Well, the Eleanor Hunt story has always been one of my primo like little dinner party stories, right? So I guess we talked about that. I can't remember which episode, but a couple episodes ago, the phenomenon, or I guess it was a small talk episode, that phenomenon of like something happens to you in the world and then you just store it up because you want to turn it into a story or an anecdote mm -hmm. or whatever. So obviously, I mean, I wasn't yet writing essays at the time that this happened to me, but it burned itself into my memory. I mean, I just remember this incident forever and ever and ever. And so when I was thinking about things I wanted, like just funny things that have happened to me or things that kind of had some meaning for me, Eleanor Hunt was, I mean, it's interesting because I didn't, it wasn't an early essay. It actually took me quite a while to write the Eleanor Hunt piece, like well into Dr. Waffle's existence, but I always kind of knew I wanted to. Um, yeah. So it's just one of, I mean, I feel like I have like, you know, we probably all have five to 10 stock stories that are just like, I tell this thing over and over and over again. And it's amazing. 
everyone is always outraged. It's like, even though it's just, it doesn't matter, it just doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. And it was a billion years ago. When I tell the story, people are always truly shocked and, and horrified. Right? It is. And especially because I think we all get that, like, to a kid, it's huge, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, now it's funny and my, and thank heaven it happened because I have this awesome story now, which is much better than having been Glinda the Good Witch, right? But, um, but uh, yeah, to a kid, it's just, it was devastating. And so I think even adults listening to it are just like, ugh, just feel the kind of pain of like being a third grader and having this happen to you. Oh, but I actually think you've tapped into a much more universal experience than that. Because I think that when people are feeling like as an adult, when people feel like someone else got their job or their leadership role or their whatever it is, um, you know, when when you truly deserved it, then then yeah, I think that outrage is absolutely carries over into adulthood. I think you're probably right. Yes, absolutely. But but of course, it's probably also tied to the fact that we have these horrifying memories of these injustices happening to us when we're little, too, which is like when we kind of first learn about that pain. But I, I also think like the other thing about this story and the reason I like it so much, and maybe it's the other reason people always respond to it, is that I have objective proof. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when things, ha- or at least obviously it's not objective because it's my memory and I was a memory of my, that I had as a child. So who knows? But, um, you know, often as an adult, when we get passed over for the promotion, it goes to somebody else or somebody else gets our whatever or somebody leaves us, you know, for another re- person in a relationship. It's all just very like, you know, inchoate and messy and roily and inside your head, right? It's mm-hmm. like, but I feel like I was better. I feel like in this case, it was like, Every single person in that room was like, whoa, she was great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even the, even the music teacher was like, well, I definitely think we don't need to, you know, look any further. We found our Glinda. Um, so it was like, it was so clear that I was, you know, the best one for the role. Um, and yet, and yet it was, it was snatched cruelly away from me oh. for no reason. <laughs> I mean, I think the fact that you've tapped into something so powerfully universal, you know, you were talking about this is just the story you tell and everybody's on board with it. I was thinking about this term like dining out on a story. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a very sort of old fashioned idea like, oh, I'll be dining out on the story for the rest (laughs) of my life is, you know, what young you could have thought. Yeah, because it is. It's the dinner party thing where everyone is uh, completely with you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's top three for sure. I mean, I couldn't tell you right now off the top of my head. That's I mean, that's actually kind of one of the funny things about having this like little stock of stories is that, you know, when I started writing the blog, I, of course, sat down and tried to think of them all. I'm like, well, what are my what are my best stories? So I want to make sure I write essays about them. And um, and I couldn't think of them that way. I couldn't like mm. I, I couldn't just like dredge them up kind of more or less artificially. They they come to me when they're triggered by something. Like when somebody says something that reminds me like, oh, that's like this thing that happened to me and blah, blah, blah. And so I can't just call them up. So when something, now I've started doing this thing where when something occurs to me, I have this huge document on my computer that I just Mm -hmm. like write down the stories that I think of or that happened to me so I don't forget. But it's, it's, it's weirdly hard. It's like, I feel like it's kind of like remembering jokes. You know how like that's a cliche that you can never, ever remember jokes. Somebody tells you a joke. You think it's hilarious. You're like, I'm totally going to remember this. And the next time someone's like, do you have a joke? You're like, I have no jokes. <laughs> it's the same thing. I can't remember the stories unless they're specifically triggered. 
by something somebody says or whatever. Yeah. So I have a question then. You're talking about sort of these stories you have, and then you write these essays. And I'm curious about how you see the relationship between story and essay. Like, are they the same thing? Or is a story embedded in an essay? Like, I'd just love to hear you talk about that. No, they're totally different, I think. Um, And I don't think it breaks down to simply like oral versus written. I don't think it's that Mm -hmm. simple. So like when I first started the blog, I wasn't really thinking of it as being particularly about personal stories at all. Like, I mean, I guess it kind of was like the first, the first few, like the first one I wrote was about like having this dental procedure. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it definitely was about this funny story that, that one not to give, not to spoil that first essay on the Dr. Waffle blog, <laughs> but that one was occasioned by being sexually harassed by my dentist. So if that doesn't get you to go to the blog and read it, I don't know what else, <laughs> what will. Because um, who doesn't want to read about that? Who doesn't want to read about someone being sexually harassed by their dentist? Two, I mean, come on. Two horrible experiences happening at the it's, same it's, time. Right? It's like, oh, your mouth is propped open and you're in pain. That's not bad enough. Let me just add this extra little thing for you here. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so I guess like they did start with me thinking like, oh, these funny things have happened to me, but that's like not an essay. So for me, I guess the idea of an essay is like you tell the story and you make it as funny as possible and then you like write about it and around it. Like, you know, what does it mean? What does it connect to? What kind of, um, I don't know, what are the little like morals or life lessons or whatever? I mean, that's kind of the Dr. Waffle shtick, right? Is like Hmm. funny story and then... I mean, I didn't intend to do this initially, but it's kind of fallen into this rhythm now where it's like, you know, story or series of stories and then a kind of like discussion about what it all means or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do think that the essay is very different from the story for sure. I've been curious about this because as I've been trying to describe our podcast, I'm like, oh, yes, you do essays and I do short memoir pieces. And I'm like, but yours is memoir-ish. And so I've been thinking about like, what is that? And I thought, well, with the essays – they're, they're topical, you know, so you can mm-hmm. sort of talk about, well, this thing happened, but also all of, you know, these five other thing hap- things happened in the same realm. And right. I think about sort of a story as like, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And mm-hmm. ideally, there's some character arc there. Um, so I, I don't know how that resonates for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess, as a genre question, it's like, I mean, we usually think, you know, story is fiction. Um, of course, in this case, they're not. They're just, they're actual things that happened. But but they have the form of fiction. Like you said, it's like something more like a like a narrative with an arc, a beginning, middle, and end, et cetera. Whereas an essay is like much more open-ended um, and can be any number of formats or, you know, experimental uh, ways of putting things together, whatever. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess that's kind of a long way of answering the question, but I feel like the story the story slash memoir thingy is like the kernel and then the essay is kind of built out around it like a now what's my metaphor an egg no <laughs> a kernel a, <laughs> a flower i don't what's the thing around a kernel i don't know a fruit Sheep? i guess mm. a, <laughs> a kernel and a and a and a pear or whatever of some mm. kind of fruit i guess yeah <laughs> so i was curious about that sort of um way that you craft your essays and, you know, you get to an ending of some sort. And I was, I was interested in the ending because you sort of go into this thing about safety and mm-hmm. stuff, and then you end up kind of with ambition and like where you directed your life and all these things. So I'm, 
I wanted to hear more about kind of how you decided where to get to with it. I guess with like with all of these pieces, I I write the story and then I think about what it means to me or what it means to other people or what why I think maybe other people respond to it. So obviously I always choose stories that have gotten a good reaction in the past that people kind of resonate with or or respond to in some way. Um so I think about why that might be and then kind of what deeper lesson or deeper idea or, or kind of larger issue or whatever is being invoked by the story. So in this case, uh, yeah, I was thinking about ambition. What, why was I so, even as like a little kid, why was I so upset that I didn't get this part? And what was the, what were all the fantasies I had about what it would mean and what it would mean to be Glinda and how I wanted to be an actor and all this. And then I guess like the kind of bigger slash deeper thing is about like what you think you're good at, right? Like, I mean, I feel like everybody or I hope everybody can look back kind of on their childhood and say, I was from the very beginning, I always knew I was good at X or I was particular, like we all have gifts and we all have things that we're talented at or have the germ of a talent for that we can nurture or whatever. So I mean, I think in a lot of cases in our culture, those things are usually sports, right? Or something really obvious, like a kind of like a math predilection or music, right? So things that are very obviously kind of careers, right? Whereas I feel like when I look back on my early childhood, like there were these two things that I was kind of a prodigy almost at, right? Like the acting one, that's kind of a joke. Although it really did happen that way. I really was, I have this very vivid memory of standing there thinking, I think the point of this whole thing is we're supposed to sound like it's real life and like just, you know, having this, I'm going to read it like I'm talking to somebody. And it really you was discovered startling. acting. I kind of did. Like, so I do think that's a kind of a, that was a gift, right? Like I was obviously had some um, predisposition to being able to do this. Mm-hmm. And the other is obviously reading and writing. And like, yeah, I did teach myself to read at, you know, when I was two or three and I was like reading and writing stuff from a very, very early age. So those are kind of my two big things that I was always really good at. And I feel like, I don't know, kids who are good at those particular things, they don't, they don't get the same kind of like attention or excitement in the adults around them, you know, than if like I was an amazing softball prodigy (laughs) or like, you know, incredible pianist or whatever. Like those are the things that people get super excited about. Like, I don't think people get super excited about like, she was like a little poet or she was like a little amazing reader or she was like a little tiny amazing actor or whatever. So anyway, that's part. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, do you think that kids get? a lot of attention and praise for that? Well, those kinds of things? Okay. I do not come from a sports family, so no one's ever gotten praise for anything (laughs) they can do Uh, athletically. But theater is totally the thing in my family that, you know, and performing in any kind of way um, was absolutely the thing that you would get praise for. Okay. So this is, this is family specific rather than like more culturally universal. Well, I also Hmm. think you have, um, captured some kind of universal theater geek experience in here as well, because (laughs) I sort of could track all of my theater experiences along with what you were saying. And uh, it would take, you know, several more podcast episodes for us to unpack, you know, the parallels (laughs) between these, I feel like. But um, yeah, so I 
in my mind, this is like, well, of course, this is the experience that you had. Um, whereas sometimes the experiences that you talk about, you're like, oh, well, of course, we were all like writing fabulous journals when we were, you know, <laughs> 10 years <laughs> old. And I'm like, I wasn't. Um, but with this one, I'm like, oh, yes, completely. This is completely aligned with my reality. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Because I guess, I mean, my family was super sporty. My mom was a gym teacher, or she trained to be a gym teacher. And my dad was super, I mean, I'm also sporty. Like, when I was growing up, we, you know, we played doubles as a family every weekend, tennis, and we like had, we skied every weekend. And we were expected, my mom was my softball coach for three years. So Mm -hmm. my sister was a pitcher, and I was a first baseman. So it's like, we did all did sports together. And I was good at sports, like, but I just wasn't like a prodigy at them. Like I was like totally competent and good at several sports, but, um, but never enough to be startling or be like, oh my gosh, she's definitely going to the Olympics or whatever. Um, yeah. Instead, all you did was teach yourself to read when you were two years old. (laughs) I, I feel like literally no one cared about that. Like literally, like when I think back on, you know, my earliest educational experiences, it was such a freaking mess. It was like such a a hodgepodge of like nobody paying any attention to me whatsoever. It wasn't until third grade before anybody noticed that I was blind as a bat and that like mm. I was like, you know, I, I was like in open classrooms. You remember all this stuff like these experimental. Oh, I remember like, the 70s. Yeah. So like I was in an open classroom, which meant that like, you know, every time I wanted to see something on the board, I would get up from my seat and walk up to the chalkboard like mm. so my nose was inches from the from the surface and read the thing and go back to my seat. And nobody noticed I was doing this because it was an open classroom. So it took years before anybody got me glasses. Um, I guess we, th- that was before the days when you had like regular eye exams in school or whatever. So nobody seemed to care that I knew how to read. I started kindergarten early because I already knew how to read. And my parents were like, we don't know what to do. She seems to already be ready for school. So we'll just send her to school. So I was four. And then, but when I got to first grade, again, another educational experiment of the seventies, we're all learning phonics, right? (laughs) So I, (laughs) I was not hooked. I was, it, it messed me up because I could already read. And my teacher was like, no, you are not allowed to read this way. We have to break it all down and start over again from scratch. So I remember like sitting there in the little circle, you know, going, ah, eh, eh, ah, ah, like over <laughs> with these other kids who didn't know how to read yet. And I was like, but I can just read it. And it was really like, it was a kind of a weird combination of like, 70s utopian educational experiment, but also totally like rigid and like, no, you will learn to read this way. And so anyway, this is all a very long way of saying I feel like whatever gifts I had as a little kid, my theater, whatever talent and my ability to read and write, like no one cared. Mm. (laughs) And not only did no one care, it was just like, it just kind of like messed up you know, the other things that people wanted from me or whatever. So, so yeah, I guess part of it is I look back on this kind of like with affection of like, oh, this like little girl who was like super good at these dorky things. And I kind of like want her to be celebrated for that retroactively because nobody else did or something. Absolutely. Like she wants to be seen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Insofar as memoir writing and essay writing and all that has some kind of like psychological function for sure. Yeah. Well, not only that, I want people not just to see how good a little theater geek I was. 
I really want everyone to hate Eleanor Hunt. That, <laughs> that is super important to me. Like, my, yeah. My big question is, <laughs> is that her real name? It is her real name. I know. I know. I thought about like, well, gosh, should I change her name? But I mean, whatever. It's The other thing is, I'm joking. I don't actually hate Eleanor Hunt. I literally haven't seen her since third grade. I don't know if she's still alive. I don't know if she would ever come across this in a million years. I mean, if there is an Eleanor Hunt out there, she would recognize herself because she went to Angeline M. Post Elementary School in Wilton, Connecticut and played Glinda the Good Witch in third grade. Like, she knows who she is. <laughs> so if she ever hears this podcast or reads this essay or whatever, she'll know it's her. But yeah, I mean, we're just little kids, so it's not like I really hate her. Yes, it's, Eleanor just, Hunt, we, we understand. You, yeah, you, you were a child. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't hold it against you anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and you've exactly. made for a fantastic story. That's right. You, th- you've given me so much more <laughs> than if you had just not said anything about my performance as Mary. Which, again, like, why were we doing a Christmas pageant in a public school <laughs> in Connecticut? Like, I don't, I don't even understand why we had a Christmas pageant. But whatever, it was, it was the seventies. Like, it was. Yeah, you know, we didn't. Yeah, I guess we didn't sweat it too much. We didn't care about the Supreme Court back then, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just have to share um, one my one story that I will share of all my theater experience. But please, please. So, well, okay. Now it's two stories. Um, when <laughs> when I was graduating from nursery school, which was mm-hmm. a huge accomplishment, of course. Um, of course. But, but there was a a little production that we were doing as part of the graduation ceremony, and I got stage fright, and so I didn't want to go up. And my parents said, "Well, that's okay. You can just sit here with us and watch instead." And I sat there with my parents, and I saw people up on that stage, and I thought oh my God, that looks like fun. And that looked like so much more fun than sitting there with my parents. And so after that, I tried out for everything. So then in second grade, um, we were having auditions for uh, Trouble in Tooth City. And so... (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Trouble in Tooth City. It might be Dental City, Trouble, but I like Trouble in Tooth City better. So I'm going to just say Trouble in Tooth City. Yes, which is okay. great. And so awesome. there were auditions for the 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 really you know the big part was the the narrator. Mm, and of course. Um, so yes, and so that was Oral J Hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great name, and and so we were trying out for an Oral J Hygiene's like you know got this. I think you know. I imagine oral J hygiene is having this like Southern drawl and I'm mm-hmm. growing up in Charlottesville, Virginia. So, mm-hmm. so everybody legit has a Southern drawl, like me least of all. Right. And so I, but I really brought it on and, and so I was like, ha, I'm oral J hygiene and this here is Tooth City. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the part and Yay. I thought, well, this is ridiculous because like I am putting on this accent that really everybody else in this room has, you know? Right. Right. Also. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my story about, you know, trying trying out as a as a young person and actually landing the role, which was very exciting, which which for me is part of like my arc with all of this is showing promise that I never fully realized. <laughs> <laughs> right. Turns out like when I went to Penn, you were talking about you went to Penn and so you didn't do any theater. I actually took a, an acting class. Oh. And discovered that I'm just not very good at it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I mean, maybe I would have discovered the same thing, but I just didn't, I didn't even try. So, but yeah. that's, so did you take it in your first year? Or I did. And- I took it in my first year. 
Wow. I'm jealous. I'm, I mean, I think that sounds like it was probably really fun, even if you discovered that you weren't as good as you thought you were or whatever. Was yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was it was okay. But it sort of gave me a sense that, oh, yes, really, I should be a psychology major. Um, I'm much better at that. <laughs> yes. You, you were a psychology major by the time I met you. So I, yeah. I didn't I didn't see that part of your um, burgeoning exploration development or whatever. Right. I just saw, I already saw you as a fully formed, I knew I wanted to be a psychology major. Yeah. But the thing I'm wondering now is that with this podcast, you're, you are sort of in this performing role. And I'm wondering if the podcast is satisfying some of your pent up theatrical energy. <laughs> Maybe. Although I think part of like the interest in it is like, actually inhabiting a role, right? It's like, I'm just being myself now. And so it is kind of fun. Like this one was the most dramatic reading I've gotten to do so far. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, I still do have fantasies, of course, of like getting involved in theater again. And there's like a, you know, I live in a small town and has a theater. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like community a theater, theater group. Yeah, community mm -hmm. theater group. Thank you. Um, and a couple times a year, my friend Kate bugs me, to, not bugs me, to to try out or strongly suggests urges that I try out and I don't. And yeah, so I mean, I do remember I had this like, oh my God, this is like so weird and freaky, but to remember this. But when I went to graduate school, like when I graduated from college and spent like a year working for Philadelphia Magazine, which I'm sure you remember, mm -hmm. um... And then I was applying to grad school and got in and I was about to go off to grad school. I, I remember having this weird little fantasy that I was going to write to Woody Allen of all people, right? Oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. Why am I telling this story? Anyway, <laughs> um, I – yeah, I freaking loved Woody Allen. I was obsessed with him. I mean, who – you know, we didn't know, obviously, at the time. This was like, you know, the early 90s or whatever, whatever it was. Um, and I was going to write to him and say, this is my last chance I'm about to go off and be an English professor. Like I'm about to go and get my PhD in English, but I've always wanted to be an actor and will you put me in a movie? Like, I mean, when I say fantasy, I mean, this is like one of those things that I would like think about as I was going off to sleep at night or like in the shower or whatever. It wasn't like I never did it. And it was just like a silly little thing. But I, it's interesting now that I think about this, how like, how I really thought of going off to English PhD school as like this kind of sentence. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Because I talked about in like a previous um, essay about how, um, or sorry, the previous podcast about how I'd also wanted to be a poet. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to settle for being an English professor instead. I, I wanted to be an actor, but I decided to settle for being an English professor instead. So I, I mean, I've always thought of that like as a cop out in some weird way, like, even though as I say, the irony is it's a ridiculously impossible profession to be in now. Like there's no jobs. It's like incredibly hard. I tell everyone, don't go to grad school. Anybody who comes to me and says they want to do it. Um, but at the time it felt like the safe way out. And so it's weird. Yeah. I, th well, I think of like this kind of backup thing that happened to me somehow. Well, I will say it, the, the whole Woody Allen thing doesn't completely surprise me. And I think he would have put you in a movie because you look like Mia Farrow. So I think it uh, would have been, you know, like I did no back brainer. then for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really funny. <laughs> but like what is also like, I don't know, there's something about that kind of like, like those fantasies that we have where we're just like literally like daydreams, you know, there's like somebody I was reading lately. I can't remember who it was now, but I'm reading somebody's essay or 
blog post or something where they talked specifically about the elaborate fantasies that they have. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they're just kind of like, they're not even like things that can really happen. They're just like, you know, like, and then I'm on Mars or, and then I'm eight feet tall or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, My fantasies are always like, I cannot have a fantasy unless it's realistically possible. Mm -hmm. It's kind of boring, but I'm like, I have to be me. It has to be like the same circumstances I'm in now. I can't be like, 10 years ago, because that's impossible. It can be the future, but it can't be in the past. And it's always like, rescue me from this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's always like something like somebody will discover something in me and, you know, whatever, and and take me away from the mundaneness of my life. And I guess most people's fantasies are about getting taken away from the mundaneness of their lives. But usually, I don't know, do most people fantasize that they do it themselves or that they're getting rescued? Well, I don't know. But I feel like this whole podcast enterprise is sort of that where I'm like, I want people to hear your stories, you Mm. know, and I'm going to make you a star. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Tanya. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, that is you are the person that save me from being an English professor. <laughs> Take me away from all this. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know. Well, and I desperately want you to audition for a play because Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I think you're a marvelous performer just in conversation, you know. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. I mean, next year this time when I'm starring on Broadway with mm. Let's not say Woody Allen because, ew. Mm. Um, <laughs> I don't know. How about Timothée Chalamet? I think he'll be you... playing Mia Farrow's sister, you know. Okay. All right. I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. So, I'll, And we'll all look back on this and be like, and that was the moment when she was finally rescued from being an English professor. <laughs> this Amazing. Hor- this horrible job that so many other people in the world would give their left arm to have, right? <laughs> And by the way, professor. Exactly. And by the way, I really do love. I feel like it's important for me to say that. (laughs) For any of my colleagues or students or anybody listening to this, I really, really love my job. I really am happy to be an English professor. It's just, you know, we all have our everyday life is everyday life, and we all want to be rescued from the quotidian. So whatever it is that you are, even if it is Broadway star, I'm sure you probably fantasize about being rescued from that too if that's your daily existence right so anyway i feel like i have to explain that i really do like my job uh yes well (laughs) excellent i'm so i'm so glad because i'm not sure that this podcast is going to be the you know the money maker that's going (laughs) to lift either of us out of the professorship you you think i i'm that i'm in it for the money man i mean If I don't see some payoff soon, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're putting this out there with absolutely no way to monetize it. But, you know, people will just want to send us money because they're sure. enjoying it so much. Yes. Sure. Yes. yes. So mm-hmm. so two more questions about the podcast and then um, – or sorry, about the essay. Mm-hmm. So is there anything you don't like about it that you would change at this point? Um, I feel like the end, and I noticed this again when I was reading it out loud, I feel like the end is really abrupt. Like usually when I do that format of like, here's a funny story or two, and then there's like the second part of it is kind of like a discussion of what I think that's really about or what the larger themes are or whatever. It's usually more balanced. This is really just like 
a little paragraph at the end because it was getting long. I was just like, <laughs> I clearly had a lot to say about my experience with Eleanor Hunt. And so the story part was very long and the little moral part is a little short. So I feel like it's maybe a little abrupt and maybe I could have thought about it some more. I mean, again, like I've said before, these are all like, I write these things pretty quickly. And so mm -hmm. they're meant more as kind of like, Someday I will go back to this and try to turn it into something a little bit more polished and a little bit more literary or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, for this one, I think I need to think more about integrating the sort of meta discussion parts with the story parts. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And, you know, we were talking about there's so many different ways you could have ended it. There's so many different themes that come up throughout. Mm -hmm. it, so, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And on the other hand, like, what's your favorite thing about it? I like the beginning. I mean, it came to me like I like the title and I like the beginning. It came to me as this kind of like, I'm just going to call this essay, I Hate Eleanor Hunt. And I just think that's like a really funny title. <laughs> um, so I like that. I really, I like the Mr. Cole part oh, yes. a lot. And that also really happened. I think, you know what, though, I have to say, I feel like that energy pageant was the next year. So I did fudge it a little bit. I don't, it wasn't a consolation pageant for the but it, it works better as a story to tell it that way. But um, but yeah, so I do feel like that part was really funny and successful and oh, whatever. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. it, that is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that part. I also love the um, the mouse's perspective on <laughs> variable ratio reinforcement. <laughs> the psychology major tells us what it's, what it's called, right? Thank you. <laughs> yes. I always call it intermittent reinforcement. Is that yeah, not? Yeah, you can call it yeah. that also. You okay. can call it that okay. also. But, but some things vary by time and some things vary by sort of number of times you've done it. And so that's oh. why this is variable ratio ratio rather than variable time reinforcement. Yeah, okay. Th thank you. Now I feel mm. like I'm going to change that when I revise the essay. I'll make sure to call it, <laughs> I'll make sure to call it the right thing. Like footnote, Tanya, explain this to me. So yeah, you know how, how things kind of stick with you from other disciplines or like you take a class in college or whatever. Like I have these little weird snippets from my, like my medical anthropology classes, like mm. the little thing about why evolutionary pressures that are in tension with each other for like pelvic width and and walking speed right so mm -hmm. like you know what I mean? like mm -hmm. like little things like that like so that little bit about like um intermittent reinforcement always stuck with me and i just think it's such a great explanation i mean it is it explains everything it explains like addiction um in mm -hmm. some ways or some aspects of addiction so so the mouse oh, thing i was like yeah i was like yeah this little mouse is like what like the well, mouse who gets the constant reward is like He's like, he's not going to stick around. I love that. Right. <laughs> like you don't get it once and then you're like, well, I guess that's not happening anymore. And then yeah. you move on. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think you do a number of great perspective taking things in there. A few times you break the fourth wall, uh, you know, as it were, and and you speak to the audience about what their imagined perspective might be. Like, oh, in mm. case you missed it, I should have gotten that part. And, you know, but there are a few times you do that. And I was trying to remember if you do that in other essays or if that's more particularly in this one where you're thinking more about an audience. So mm. I was curious. That is a really interesting insight. Yeah. I mean, this is like this essay is more theatrical because it's about theater. Um, I think you might be right. Like the little asides and the Especially the part where I say, like, you know, you may also be thinking to yourself, well, Eleanor mm -hmm. Hunt had a point, whatever. Yeah, I don't think I do much of that in other essays, honestly. I did not do that consciously. I should mm -hmm. say that I did it consciously because it sounds... <laughs> 
Of course. Of course I intended that because I'm, you know, using theatrical. Oh, no. I think it's even yeah. I think it's even more marvelous when it just comes through because this is the topic of your essay. Yeah. You write in that way. I think that yeah. that's kind of fantastic. Well, so much of this stuff is unconscious in the end, right? It's like mm. um that's why as an English professor coming at it from the other side, you know, we always remind our students not to like fall prey to the intentional fallacy, blah, 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 for various reasons, one of which is nobody really knows what their intentions are anyway. So um, it's all a reconstruction or a construction um, after the fact. Anyway, thank you for noticing that because I really, yeah, I like oh, that. Yeah. The other thing I want to say to the listeners is go read this essay because then you get the footnotes, which have some very interesting information in them. So because I, I was thinking, well, I'm curious to hear more about roomy, well-equipped dressing rooms where you learn to do many things for the first time. And I feel like I got a little bit more information about that in one of the footnotes. Mm-hmm. You and do I was, indeed. I was also fascinated by the footnote about the football player in Barefoot in the Park. And then I went to the Wikipedia entry for that person, which yes. which is fascinating because it notes his high school as quote, where he played football and studied acting. And I was right, right. <laughs> which okay. I thought was great. Yeah. So now I'm like, I'm not going to say his name if you I'll feel like if people really curious, they'll go look at the essay and mm. they'll see the footnote and it will take you to his not only his Wikipedia page, but also his IMDb page. Mm. He's not a super well known actor, but he's He's one of these actors who's been around forever. Like his first little mini role was in Top Gun, I think. And um, he has like one line or something. But he he's one of those people who like if you – there's a few shows that if you've seen that show, you're like, oh, he's like the star of a couple shows. And you're like, mm. oh, that guy. But I feel really bad saying this. And again, like I haven't seen him since high school. He was a perfectly lovely person. Mm-hmm. And he obviously went on to actually make a career in acting, unlike all the rest of us, all right. of the little theater geeks, you know, uh, some of us, like one of us is an agent and w- one of us did go on um, to have an acting career. One of us is in music. I'm in literature, which I don't know, whatever, not related, but still. So none of us really did the thing we thought we were going to do, which is like become a Broadway star, become mm-hmm. a Hollywood star. So we had our little gang. He was not in our gang. He was a football mm-hmm. player. He was a popular kid. And he decided, oh, I want to be in this play. And so he auditioned and got the lead in Barefoot in the Park. We actually had a double production with two different casts. So, like, mm. he played that the role two nights and somebody – Jonathan Glecklin, I believe. <laughs> I'm just using real people's names now. Jonathan Glecklin, who was amazing in the role, played it the other two nights. And, like, all these people came out the night that he did it because he had all of his, like, popular kid friends and football friends and whatever. And they didn't, but they never came to our theater productions before, you know, all these, Mm -hmm. this other group of people in in high school. And so we were all kind of a little bitter about it, you know, like, ugh, who does he think he is just swanning in here? Like, yeah, sure, I can just take over a major role in your little world and all these people will come and watch me. And we were kind of like, ugh, he's such a fake and a poser. Not really. I mean, again, he was a nice guy and he did a fine Mm -hmm. job. But then later, for him to actually go on and become an. The only one of us from high school who actually had a career in the movie industry. It was like, wow, that's just, yeah. Just it makes there. me want to check and see if the cheerleader who got the starring role in Bus Stop ended up going into <laughs> acting. You know? I feel like we all have that person, you know? Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. I love that. <laughs> you should totally go look her up. Yeah, I'd definitely do that. Well, it's almost like if you had, you know, gone and been the quarterback for a couple of games. And then you went on to become a professional football player, right? 
Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's like, you know, it's also important that it's this direction and not the other direction, though, on some level, because it's like, you know, the theater kids are the dorks and outcasts and mm-hmm. like weirdos. And we're like, not up in the hierarchy of high school. And the football kids are obviously at the top of the hierarchy of like every high school since time immemorial. And I don't know why that is, but it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his crossing the divide was actually like kind of like stooping or slumming. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what makes it particularly right. bitter. Whereas I think if it was in the other direction, it would it would have just been like weird. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's true. I mean, the theater crowd, that that was my crowd. But I love the theater crowd. You know, I oh, have to say like it's it's totally on the margin and it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful no, I completely group. agree. Like I freaking love my theater crowd friends, Nancy and Steve and Bill and Bobby. <laughs> you all know who you are. I mean, I actually have another essay, like an earlier one about Jesus Christ Superstar, which is really kind of even more about being a theater kid and mm-hmm. finding your people. I actually love that essay too. Maybe I'll do that one soon. Um, it'll be like kind of like paired pieces or whatever. I might but, have to write up something about my all, my theater life then too. And yes, we'll you, just, you should. We'll just have a much more specific podcast from then on. We'll just keep writing <laughs> That's about That's right. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't really know what we're doing yet, but I mean, I guess it's too late to do it now, but maybe in future, if we do seasons, we can have like a theme or something. Mm. Although, I don't know, maybe people will get sick of hearing about the same thing all the time, but I don't know. <laughs> so anything else you want to say about the essay? I guess I just want to say one more time, Eleanor Hunt, <laughs> if you are listening, <laughs> I don't hate you. I didn't even really hate you then. I'm sorry I used your real name. If you hear this ever and you are out there, um, email me. I would love to be in touch and hear how your life turned out and what you're doing. Uh, no hard feelings. It's very generous of you. <laughs> well, I, I would hope so. I mean, I think it would be pretty freaking sad if I was still actually angry at Eleanor Hunt like, yeah. after, after this many years. Like, still your nemesis. <laughs> exactly. Although, on the other hand, like, what an easy, pleasant life that would have been if that was, like, the only person who ever crossed me. <laughs> I was still holding on to it. <laughs> oh, that's great. So... More broadly about the podcast. So our podcast launched the day before yesterday with our first four episodes. I know. It's so exciting. So I'm curious, like, um, how's that going for you? (laughs) I I mean, it was starting to feel like it was never going to happen because I was just Mm -hmm. like, it was because, you know, we started like recording the first one, I don't know, last summer and it's Mm -hmm. now February. So it took a while for us to, you know get the recordings done, figure out how to do the editing, get it all, you know, all the stuff around it, the music and and all that stuff. So now that it's actually like kind of up and running and the subsequent episodes are going to be coming regularly, it feels real now. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. I, yeah, I still feel a little nervous. Like, what are people going to think about it? And, you know, like I'm like still kind of on tenterhooks waiting for responses. And so far, you know, like people have reached out to say they've listened to it and they love it. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm assuming people aren't going to reach out to say they've listened to it and they hate it. So <laughs> you can just hold your tongues. <laughs> that's right. If you hate it, we don't actually want to know that. But <laughs> Yeah, we, we don't we don't need to know about that. So yeah, yeah. I wish I wish student evaluations worked that way. <laughs> mm. Anyway, <laughs> although so, actually, if people, ha- you know, now I'm thinking about student evaluations, if people oh, have God. suggestions, you know, like, yeah. it's always nice to know, like what people oh, sure. would like. Um, from us. I agree. Constructive yeah. criticism is always welcome and feedback that will help improve the class. You know, I'm yeah. just, you know, more like whatever the kind of ad hominem weird stuff you get, especially as a middle-aged 
woman oh, professor. Oh. This is a totally different topic. We will talk about student evaluations some other time. <laughs> yes, indeed. I want to hear how your reaction is going so far with the, with the podcast launch. Oh, yeah. Well, it is – it's so much fun. Like, mm-hmm. I love um, having – done it. And it's finally out there because it's true. It did sort of, you know, take a while for us to get it together. And then hearing from people what they're enjoying is the most marvelous thing. And we got our first fan mail today, which was (laughs) great. It's from one of my exes, um, which is... Like particularly delightful, um, but awesome. I have I've talked to other exes who are also enjoying the podcast. So this is apparently <laughs> most of my personal listenership that I. <laughs> well, this raises an interesting question, right? I mean, like, are they are they waiting, hoping, fearing to hear themselves in you know described or discussed in the podcast? Oh, I think everybody's going to get a story. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure. So perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. No, that particular ex, I have a story like ready to go. That's one of my dining out stories, actually. Ooh. So yes, um, it's sort of the thing that got me into memoir writing to begin with. So oh my gosh, is, I know. Are you going to do this one next or soon? No, I'm not going to do it next. Um, I kn- I know what I'm doing next. I'm I, okay. no no spoilers here. Um, no, of but, course not. But yeah, I um, it it will come. It will come. But speaking of what you're doing next and spoilers, at some point, you do have an essay about your fear of spoilers, right? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. We we need to hear that at some point because it's – I mean, I don't want to use the word pathology <laughs> because you are a psychology person, but I mean – it's it's intense. It's extreme. It's like, no, it's my, extreme. My yeah, my yeah. uh my piece that I've written about that is called irrational fear of spoilers. Like there I you recognize go. that it is yeah. that it is irrational. It's problematic. I I speed through shows sometimes so that I can finish watching it before anyone can talk to me about it because it'll ruin wow. it completely. Yeah, and so so that that's the other thing that we figured out in the last few days is that we needed. Um, more specific show notes. And right. so, so one of the things that I started noting for show notes was like where we have spoilers. Cause I freaked out so much when you did that Mad Men spoiler. And so I was like, <laughs> Oh, we have to let people know that there's a spoiler for Mad Men in here. Cause even though it's been out for a very long time, maybe there's someone who's like <laughs> waiting to watch it and this will um, ruin it like, for them completely. I feel like this show ended like eight years ago or something. <laughs> like, there has to be like as a, as a culture. As a culture, we have to come to some kind of an agreement about this because you can't be spoiler free on a show that that's that that is that ended that long ago. Yeah, forever, well, well right? some of so some of the spoiler alerts that we'll be putting in show notes are a little tongue in cheek, like you know, spoilers for Gone with the Wind and Greek right. mythology and things like that. Like I recognize, <laughs> yes. you know, but yes. um, but it's sort of fun to identify where we have the spoilers, yes. nonetheless. I agree, and I, I'm very excited to to talk to you more about the spoiler thing because I actually think. I don't want to go into it now because that would be a spoiler for the spoilers. <laughs> but I just think the whole thing is completely fascinating. Like, you know, both both ends of the spectrum, both people who like, I have another friend who must know the ending of something before mm. she can even start watching it or hearing about it. Like, so like, oh, it's wow. the exact, it's like irrational almost in the other direction. Like, mm. cannot enjoy herself hates suspense so much, even for like relatively mild things, that she can't watch something or read something until she's consumed the ending and knows how, where it's all headed. So yeah, so I'll, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this and what it all means. All right, I'll cue that one up for, for soonish. Okay. 
Awesome. So shall we wrap things up for this time? And uh, yeah, we'll, I think so. We'll, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much for letting me do my Billy Burke impression. <laughs> That's all I really <laughs> wanted to do. <laughs> it was utterly delightful. Thanks so much, <laughs> Thank Deanna. You. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod, that's Dr. Waffle Pod, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening.